Well, good morning. Good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. We would love a chance to visit with folks who are visiting or just faces we haven't seen in a while. I'm looking out and I'm seeing some folks that we have not had a chance to connect with. So if you've got a minute afterwards, we'd love to say hi and just hug on you for a moment. Uh, my name's Keith Collins. I'm one of the pastors here. And in case I haven't had a chance to meet you, hopefully we'll do that afterwards. Well, Easter is a true story that's intended to have an impact on your story. So whatever we're celebrating today shouldn't just be something that you had to come here to celebrate. It should be something that screams from your life that you celebrate the resurrection through your own story. But in just a moment as I share the Easter message with us, we're going to meet some folks in Scripture who weren't affected by the resurrection. And that can happen. It's not supposed to happen, but it can happen. But before we meet those folks, I want to introduce you to somebody this morning who's going to tell her story. She's going to tell the story of how she had heard about the story of the resurrection, but she became affected by the story of the resurrection. So I hope you'll hear something from God this morning and what he really wants for our lives. Not just to know of a story that's over there, but of a story that's come here to be told in this story as well. So please welcome this morning Ms. Belinda Mascoro. Belinda. morning. My name is Valinda Mascoro. I grew up in New Orleans where I was raised in an average middle-class suburban family. I'm the youngest of three children and I attended both Catholic elementary and high school. I later pursued a career in education and I taught at several Catholic high schools for a total of 13 years. My father worked as a professor of medicine at Tulane University Medical Center, and my mother worked in retail. My siblings and I were churched very early on, and we underwent the age-appropriate sacraments that were required as part of our religious training. I grew up never doubting the existence of God. With all my heart, I sincerely believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and I believed in the existence of heaven and hell. Although I had a belief system that was seemingly solid, my desires were purely self-centered. And I had actually spent more than half of my lifetime participating in lewd, lustful, and drunken behavior. In July of 2002, my sister received a door hanger from a small church in her neighborhood advertising vacation Bible school, to which she discarded... However, the church decided to canvass her neighborhood a second time, and just one week later, she received the exact same door hanger. And as a result, she made a decision to register my niece for VBS. At the end of the week-long program, an invitation was extended to her to attend church on Sunday. So she accepted their offer, and shortly thereafter, she became completely immersed in the church. As a result, my sister began to share with me what she was experiencing at her newfound church. 
Her news perplexed me because I considered myself to be a believer already. She asked me if I believed that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven. I wasn't quite sure how to answer that question because I understood that there were other world religions that didn't profess belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But it was her insistence upon the exclusivity of Jesus Christ that troubled my conscience. I became preoccupied with the salvation of the world at large, and I wept for the lost nations and cultures that did not know Christ. I wanted everyone else to be spiritually connected to God as though I was. However, I was failing to see that I myself did not know Christ personally. In actuality, I was neglecting my own spiritual condition. In spite of this, I began attending church and Bible study with my sister on a regular basis. Because I was deceived into thinking that I was in right standing with God, I was completely unaware that I was lost. I certainly didn't feel as though I was separated from God. On the contrary, I was extremely confident that when I died, I would go to heaven, not realizing that my life had the trappings of religion and that I had not submitted to God as my Lord. So the way that God addressed this with me is that I had a dream. And in the dream, I was alone in a state of absolute nothingness. It was a place of total darkness without sound, motion, or color. In a state of utter panic and distress, I began begging God to save me, but my cries went unheard. And as my pleas continued, there came an increasing awareness that I was in a state of eternity and that my situation was irrevocable. It was at this time that I woke up from the dream and I had a vivid remembrance of a particular piece of scripture in my memory. The memory was so clear as if the name of the book, the chapter, and the verses were seared in my mind. I was not very familiar with the Bible at this time, but I knew where the Gospel of John was from having attended church with my sister. So I picked up her Bible and I began reading. It happened to be the story of John mentioned in chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And this story is entitled the woman at the well. And in this gospel narrative, Jesus confronts a woman who is drawing water from a well in the town of Samaria. He begins to speak with her, and he reveals to her that she has had five husbands and that the man with whom she is living with is, is currently not her husband. She recognizes Jesus as merely a prophet, and she tells him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to me. Then Jesus declared to her, I who speak to you am he. The parallel drawn between the woman at the well and me was absolutely profound. This had essentially become my story. This was a moment that I met the Messiah. And for the first time, I understood that I was lost and that I needed to be saved. I realized that I had grown up in a religion which consequently produced in me a false assurance of salvation. With my tongue, I professed Jesus Christ as Savior, but in my heart, I was the Lord of my own life. I was perishing, I was heading straight for hell, and blissfully ignorant of my separation from God. I had never been regenerated by the new birth that Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, verse 3, when he declares, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So the Lord providentially pieced together a series of events involving a door hanger, a small church, my sister, a dream, and a Samaritan woman to reveal to me the condition of my soul. 
He exposed my false assurance of salvation that, along with my sin, kept me enslaved to Satan for 32 years. He drew me to repentance, and as I turned to him, he rescued me from the darkness that I was living, and he brought me into the kingdom of God. Today, I no longer live my life as I formerly did. My newfound hope is in the person of Jesus Christ and in knowing that my sins are forgiven. I have received unmerited favor that is bestowed upon me by God through faith in Jesus Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of me, and it is my desire to glorify him in everything that I do for as long as I do. So I share all of this with you all basically and simply uh, just to tell you this is the story of how God rescued me. This is a tribute to God's grace. I praise him that it was a dream. I praise him that he did not leave me in a state of separation. And I'm, I praise him for allowing me the honor to be a representative of his while on this earth until he calls me home to glory. Thank you. Testing. There we go. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Belinda, thank you so much for your story. You know, there's a lot of different stories here this morning. And so many could tell some form of a story like that. And but what I think it's in, important, what I appreciate about having Belinda just come up and tell her story, is that it presents the reality that when we read Scripture... Scripture is to have an impact on our lives. This event that we're going to talk about this morning was meant to have an impact on our lives. The story that all of us are familiar with, this Easter story, is to touch our story. And everyone here this morning should be able to put their finger on the moment when that story touched your story. Now, if you're seated here this morning, you're saying, you know, I don't know if I can find that moment. Well, then maybe this morning is that moment. Maybe God's got you here this morning so that this could be the moment where God's story touches your story in an amazing way. Well, we're here this morning to, to celebrate Easter. Easter 2011, as you see up there on the board. And, you know, I was a little concerned this year. I don't know. I didn't know if Easter was really going to happen or not. And uh, I took out the Sunday paper last week, and guess what? I saw in the Target section. Easter is next Sunday, and I said, yes, yes, Easter is on, baby. And there's, there's sweet deals for every bunny. There's Reese's, M&M's, Godiva chocolate bunnies were available. Then I kept reading, and one-stop Easter shop at Toys R Us, 30% off everything. Easter baskets were there. It was going to be unbelievable. I'm thinking Easter is on. 88 cents Easter candy sale at CVS. If you didn't know, that was happening this week. Unbelievable. And then for those of you a little bit more refined than that world market, Easter extravaganza. So not only was Easter on, it was going to be big. Easter was going to be big this year. And so I was very excited to be here this morning that Easter is on, apparently. 
That's probably not why you came, though, right? You know, Easter for the Christian is the celebration of this amazing thing that took place three days after the other most significant event. These, these events go hand in hand. Without either one of them, we're, we're not here talking about Christianity. The day that Jesus Christ, God, became a man and went to a cross and died a sacrificial death. Didn't just die any death. This is not just a story about a man dying. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of this man being God, dying a death for a purpose. Now, all of us die, but he died a death for a purpose, and that purpose was to reconcile us to God. And he was the only person who ever lived who had the power to reconcile people to God. Now, if he claimed to do that, and then he died, and we'd have no way of knowing, did he make good on his promise? Until three days later, when he comes up out of the ground and he's resurrected and the stamp of God's approval and acceptance goes onto that act by showing us that God has accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. That's the Easter story. Now, how you respond to the Easter story says a lot about what you really believe about it. There are some people... When they hear the Easter story, it's their delight. It's their passion. They're, they're a little weird about it. They talk about it, and it doesn't just take Easter morning for it to be a subject of conversation. It comes up in their life and their lifestyle because there's something really, really big about Easter. Then there's those whose belief is kind of a de-emphasizing of the resurrection. I mean, it's there. It's, it's in life, it's recognized. Valinda talked about that. There's just aspects to, to the religious world that we acknowledge. I mean, hey, I'm not saying that Target's anti the resurrection. I don't know. It just, I just couldn't find it in the flyer, you know? Just sort of didn't make the headlines. The bunny made the headlines, but the cross and the empty tomb just, I don't know, kind of got de-emphasized, maybe. And then you got folks who just plain deny the resurrection. Just don't believe it. Don't believe it really happened. Don't believe it's important. Now, here's the challenge about believing the resurrection. Because we live in a, in a culture that, that almost wants to teach us that any of those three responses is acceptable. And they're all kind of valid in their own way. It just depends on you personally. But it's a, it's a valid response. You can either delight in it. You can kind of push it to the side and de-emphasize it, or you can just deny it altogether. And, and that's up to you, and all three of those are valid. Now, now, question to you, really. Are all three of those really valid? I mean, can you really say it's just as reasonable and acceptable to deny the resurrection as it is to delight in it with your whole life, and either one of those responses is okay? Well... Let's explore a little bit about what it takes to really believe the resurrection this morning. Apparently, believing the resurrection is not as easy as one might seem. Right? Do you remember the response on this morning, this glorious morning? We came in here singing. We came in here rejoicing. We came in here recognizing something that on that morning wasn't quite as clear. Do you understand that the resurrection didn't just occur and everybody got it? The people closest to Jesus, 
didn't necessarily get it. Here, look at these passages. I put them up here on the overhead. Luke chapter 24. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Right? The angels show up, and they're going to lend an explanation. Now, if we pull the angels out of this scene, you just got some devoted lovers of followers of Christ who are puzzled by an empty tomb. That's what you have. John chapter 20. So, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, this is what Mary Magdalene did, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is Mary Magdalene's theological explanation for what's happening here. She, she doesn't break into some song about the resurrection. She's just trying to explain how the body is missing. They, who's they? Mary, Mary who are you talking about? Who's they who have taken, and where they've laid him, you, you don't know where he is. The Bible says, for as yet they had not understood the scriptures. Wait, wait, wait. They had not yet understood the scriptures? You mean the scriptures had already explained this to them? Yes. And Jesus had taught at length on it. And immediately that puts us in touch with, you can know the details of this story and still not believe it. Right, well, not just these guys. What about the disciples? How did the disciples respond? Luke 24, verse 10. And that was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Here the disciples who had spent three years with Jesus, they had heard him teach. He had explained the resurrection to them. And yet, they didn't get it either. Apparently, the resurrection is not the easiest thing to believe. Years later, right? Years later, these passages. Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul, some 15, 20 years later, is standing in Athens, and he's explaining the gospel to them. So it says, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, 15 to 20 years later, it's still hard to believe, really believe, that this resurrection thing was for real. The people in Corinth, passage that Matt was reading from, got generated by a group of people who were living in Corinth at the time who just couldn't go with this resurrection thing. It's like even if they wanted to believe Christianity, the resurrection idea was throwing them off. It says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So not only on the morning of the resurrection was it hard to believe, some 15, 20 years later, it's still hard to believe the resurrection. Now, question, does it matter what you believe about the resurrection? Because you're going to believe something that's either going to make you delight in it, de-emphasize it, oh, sure, it's there, but it's, you know, it's behind the candy aisle, or deny it. Does it matter what you believe? Right? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. If you have a Bible, if not, you can just listen and I'll read a few passages to us. Matt started to read out of this passage. Listen, listen to what the Bible has to say about this event of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if that's the truth, your faith is futile. It's useless. And you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just dead. You'll never meet them again. There's no hope for a future life. It's just done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So now what does that Bible verse, what does that little passage right there tell you about the resurrection and Christianity? If Christianity isn't true, then this whole belief system is a foolish waste of your life. Let's, let's, let's take it off the shelf of all these viable religions, right? Because you've got all kinds of religions out there. Right? You can feel in a variety of ways about the resurrection, and you can, and can kind of slide that into a variety of positions, different belief systems that feel differently about the resurrection. But according to the Apostle Paul, if the resurrection gets extracted from Christianity, then the advice for Paul to all Christians is stop being a Christian immediately. Don't waste another moment. Don't show up at this building ever again. Because what's being said from here is a lie. It's a misrepresentation of God. Christianity is invalid. And you're wasting your life. That makes the resurrection a big deal, doesn't it? Because it's do or die. What you believe about the resurrection is a do or die situation in terms of your relationship with God. Now, let me say this. This is a sober reality. You can go ahead and start turning to Mark chapter 12. We're going to meet some folks here this morning. So folks who were very religious, knew a lot about God, knew the Bible, and yet did not believe in the resurrection. That can still be true. You know a lot about God. And you can have read the Bible and agree with a lot of what's in the Bible and really not believe in the resurrection. Let me introduce you to a group of folks named the Sadducees. And we're going to learn real quickly who they were and what was their belief and what was their problem. All right, so we'll look at that real quick. Let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. This, this would have been earlier in Holy Week, right? So Jesus makes his triumphal entry. Uh, Jeff preached on that last week as he comes into Jerusalem on the first day of the week on Sunday. Probably Tuesday, this is the interaction that's taking place. It's a very interesting picture here because Jesus has a lot of interaction with guys in Jerusalem that, that's not real kind, it's not real pleasant. He's being cross-examined and examined and his story is being attacked and looked at from a bunch of different angles. And what's interesting here is 
you follow the parallel, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he is coming into this great event that all around the hillsides of Jerusalem are sheep and shepherds tending their sheep because they're about to bring in for this massive slaughter that's going to take place in Jerusalem. They're going to bring in lambs. But during the week, these lambs are being inspected and the blemished, unacceptable lambs are being pushed aside and the acceptable lambs are going to be slaughtered at the Passover. And interesting, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He passes through all those lambs. And he comes into Jerusalem, and the examination begins. And he's cross-examined and looked at and ridiculed. And, try, and they try to find spots on him. What's interesting is he gets slaughtered. The perfect lamb was found. And no one could find a blemish on him. But these guys were trying. These Sadducees were trying. Verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, this is, this is a leading question. This is a question that's going somewhere. It's supposed to trip you up. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now you can, I can just sort of see them kind of looking at each other like, <laughs> in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now they're thinking, we got him. He doesn't have an answer for this. He's a fool. He believes in the resurrection. Here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> well, who, who are these Sadducees? Well, if you, if you visited cultural Judaism, right, this is a Jewish religious nation. So it's, it's a people who are both a political structure and a religious structure married together. And there would be these three kind of leading voices, political parties, religious parties, if you will. They would be scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, these guys had a lot in common, all right? They all believed in this nation of Israel. They believed similarly in God. They're, they're, I mean, they're kind of like Republicans and Democrats and Tea Parties and whoever else is out there these days. There'd be some things that these parties would agree on, right? They believe in democracy, believe people should have a right to vote, believe in taxes, but just disagree on how taxes should be structured, who should pay what, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in a similar way, there was, there was a lot of agreement amongst these folks. They were all monotheistic. They believed in one God. Now, if you grew up in America, you're kind of like, oh, okay, no big deal. If you grew up where these folks were, big deal, very big deal. Because you were an oddball if you were a monotheist. 
most people believed in many gods. They were polytheistic. The Greek culture, you know, Zeus and Apollo had a pantheon, had a, a great list of gods. And whatever your need was, you kind of brought them to the specialist. Whoever the God that handled that, you went to that one, then you went to this one, you went to that one. When, when the Israelites moved into the land of Canaan, there were multiple gods that the people believed in. At certain times of the year, they served this one because of what they need was. Different locations served this God. When, when countries got into a fight, quite often it was to see whose God was greater. Not that they were saying, your God isn't God. They were just saying, our God's greater than your God. But sure, your God is God too. But our God's a greater God than you, and they go to war over that. Now, when they were done, they didn't stand back and say, see, your God isn't a God at all. They just said, our God beat your God. And if they lost, then they would say, well, then your God's greater than our God. We'll add your God to our God. See, they never abandoned their gods. They just added more gods. So in a way, they're just, you could just kind of believe in everything. Does that sound familiar? I think polytheism fits well with postmodernism, where everything is supposed to kind of get along with each other. Everything's okay. You can believe in a bunch of different things. Just add that belief to your belief, and you'll be okay. Well, that was not the position for the religious nation of Judaism. They were monotheists. They all agreed on that. They, they agreed very much on certain moral codes. You lived your life a certain way. Certain things were wrong. And certain things were right. There wasn't this everything goes. Whatever you believe, you can do that. No, no, no. They had certain moral codes that they lived by. And they had agreement on those things. There were ceremonial codes that they agreed with. And they had some differences, but they agreed with a lot of it. Now, how much can you agree on before your disagreements become deal breakers? And I'm watching this PBS story just a couple of weeks ago. It's a story that was talking about the Old Testament documents, and it was, it was trying to challenge the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon. And as it looked at this kingdom, and it looked at the Old Testament, and it looked at historic records, and it looked at archaeological digs, it found its way into Jerusalem. Well, once it's in Jerusalem, it's beginning to tell the story of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has today houses the three monotheistic religions of the world. It houses Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So they begin to kind of go off into that a little bit and compare these similarities. And all of them not only share Jerusalem as a centerpiece in common, but they also go back to Abraham and share Abraham as the great patriarch of their religions. Now question, does their commonality overcome their differences? Is Judaism and Christianity and Islam so similar that their differences are minor and can be overlooked? Or are their differences so significant that it destroys their similarities? Now listen, in a pluralized culture, this is important that you think about this a little bit. Because you bump into these belief systems. All right, well, what's, what's significantly different? Well, today's celebration is significantly different between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Among them, only, only Christianity today is celebrating the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ, who was God, who came and put on human flesh. Judaism rejects that. 
Judaism says that Jesus Christ was not God come in the flesh. So it redefines the person of Christ. It says he was an important person. It says he had significant things to say, but he wasn't God taking on the form of a man, and he was not resurrected from the dead. So Judaism says, no, Christianity, we don't agree with you. You're wrong. Right, now, can you go with me here? Because I, what I'm about to say is going to make it sound like I'm the bully on the block, and I'm telling everybody else they're wrong. All right, can, you, can you just go with me just for a second? Can you see that somebody else picked the fight before I got there? <laughs> Christianity comes along and makes this claim. Jesus Christ is God come to earth on a mission. He died and was resurrected from the dead. Judaism comes along and says, no, we disagree. That's wrong. 400 years after these events take place, Islam comes along. Islam stands up and says, "Uh uh-uh. No, God, the monotheistic God that we believe in, would never exist in the person of Jesus Christ, and he would not come to earth and take the form of a man. The dude who came, messenger, had some great things to say. We respect that, but he is not God, and he did not get raised from the dead. All right, so when Christianity turns around and says something else is wrong, can you see the fight got picked by somebody else? Because Christianity is going to defend itself. Because these three beliefs, they don't get along with each other. The differences overwhelm the similarities. Oh, yeah, they got Jerusalem in common. Yes, they do. They have Abraham in common. Yes, they do. But they do not have the God of Abraham in common. Because Christianity comes along and says the God of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And Islam turns and says, no, it's not. And Judaism says, no, it's not. So their differences are huge. And they cannot all be true at the same time. So here's my, here's my reasonable premise here. Let's reason together. I think I put this in your outline. If Jesus isn't who he said he was and the resurrection isn't true, then Christianity is a hopeless belief system. If Jesus is who he said he was, and the resurrection is true, then any belief that rejects that is false. All right, now listen, I'm a, I'm a math and science dude. I'm an engineering background. Logic is, it's a real concept. It's reasonable to make that statement. Because you can't just say, well, somehow, let's just blend those two thoughts together and let's let them both be okay with each other. They're not okay with each other. If, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't take place, then Christianity is an empty religion, and you're wasting your life to believe it. Go believe something else. However, if the resurrection did occur, then Christianity is true, and by it becoming true, it makes other positions false. And that's what happens here with Jesus. He interacts with the Sadducees who have a belief. And he's about to tell them, you're wrong. Sometimes your belief is wrong, and that's where he goes. Their position was this. There's no resurrection. Josephus was a first century historian. He said this. The doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. And when your soul dies, your 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 body dies, your soul goes with it, and you're done. So when Jesus died, he was done. He lived his life on earth and kind of got buried in a box, and he's done. Albert Barnes commenting as well says, the Sadducees say, says Josephus, 
Take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. Sadducees didn't believe that. Was their position a problem? Well, Jesus interacts with it like it's a problem, right? When you go on scene here with Jesus, you don't find him giving room for their position. He makes no room for it. Matter of fact, he challenges their position. So can we learn a little bit from Jesus this morning? We're here celebrating the resurrection. It's centered on this person of Christ. When he interacted with belief systems, what did he sound like? How did he interact with them? Well, look here in Mark 12 again. Jesus' thoughts on what one believes about the resurrection. Verse 24, bumps into these Sadducees. They have a position. First thing he says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? You are wrong. Now, I don't, I don't, you know, we're reading words that are written down. I don't know what Jesus sounded like when he said it. I don't know what his facial structure looked like. And I'm tempted to kind of make him into my personality, so I'm sure it was cutting and sarcastic. <laughs> but maybe, no, maybe not. Maybe it was just pleasant and puppy-eye-ish. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Kind of doubt it. Jeff kind of talked a little bit about that last week. He had eyes that would penetrate you and cut holes in you like they were uh, blow torches. <laughs> you are wrong. Do you ever have God say that to you? You are wrong. You are living wrong. You believe the wrong thing. And I want you to really stop and think for a moment. When it comes to your religious beliefs, what have you been wrong about? All right, back up in your life a little bit. Can you, can you find moments where your religious beliefs got adjusted? Can you find any moments that as you grew up and grew older, you became convinced that what I have been believing is wrong? It's an interesting thought from Oz Guinness in his book, The Long Journey Home. He says, are you living an examined life or are you living in the hand-me-down ideas of others? Are you open to the full interrogation of life or are you closed to the search because you believe what you've always believed without question? Now stop. This is a, this is a serious question. And if you'd asked me at certain points in my life, that would have described me. I lived in the hand-me-down ideas of others. I didn't stop and do serious investigation. I didn't examine those beliefs. I didn't stop and consider and weigh them. Matter of fact, I wasn't even sure the people who were telling me those things were accurately repeating the things that they were told. I never investigated the source. I didn't stop and listen to somebody who shared from some kind of a religious pulpit and stop and say, hey, hey, can you, can you help me with, where'd you get that again? Oh, I don't know. I just thought of it this morning at breakfast. <laughs> you know, I, I never asked. I didn't know where this stuff was coming from. I assumed because he was dressed a certain way and standing in a religious setting that he was getting this stuff from a viable source. But did I ever investigate it? No. It's just what we believed. I mean, we were a decent family. We, we went to church. We had religion in our lives. We led decent moral lives. 
I mean, we weren't, we weren't going to win some kind of a peace prize. We weren't going to stick out a lot for what we were doing, but neither were we going to jail. I mean, we weren't hurting anybody. We went to religion classes. That's kind of how we grew up. Now, at some point in my life, here's the wrong, the biggest wrong. I'd say it's the biggest wrong ever confronted in my life. My belief that I could, I could be right with God based on my relative goodness. That was the biggest moment of God saying, Keith, you believe that? You're wrong. And I use the word carefully, relative goodness. Because that really is what I believed. I believed in relative goodness. I didn't believe in absolute goodness. I didn't believe that God was establishing his relationship with me based on absolute goodness, and I was an absolutely good person. No, I knew better, right? I mean, I was, I was a mischievous kid growing up. I was a problem teenager. So there wasn't enough absolute goodness going on in me, but there was decent relative goodness. I just needed to make sure I related to the right people. Now, if I got around certain people, I didn't look as good, but I got around others, and, and immediately it's like, well, I'm not that bad, right? So this was my relative position. I had a relative goodness, and therefore, based on the fact that there were others worse than me, that, you know, a lot of the times what I was doing wasn't really hurting anybody, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think God would be okay with me. I mean, I would, couldn't be absolutely sure, but I, I think he'd be okay with me. Now, listen to what this does, right? Because Jesus is going to make a stance. He's going to tell somebody, you're wrong. You stay in that position, you're in the wrong position, and it will have consequences. All right, so if you approach me, and I think Valinda mentioned something about this in her story. If you approach me and, you, and you'd said, Keith, okay, so you think one day you hope that you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, Keith, what about this person over here? He doesn't believe what you believe. He hasn't been raised the way you were raised. He's from another continent, and he believes some other things than you believe. Do, do you think that guy's going to heaven too? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Why would I say that? Because I believe that he's probably relatively good too. The basis for getting to heaven in my life was, are you relatively good? Now, if you're a terrible person and you're intentionally just destroying other people's lives and you're, you know, you're going to be in jail and people are going to be weeping over the, what you've done to them. Okay, well, I probably would say probably not. But if that guy's relatively good and I'm relatively good, well, then there's the basis right there, being a relatively good person. Do you understand it's got nothing to do with the resurrection? That guy doesn't need to believe in the resurrection. I didn't really need to re- believe in the resurrection. And if you'd met me, you'd be fully convinced you really don't believe in the resurrection, do you? Because <laughs> my life didn't look like it believed significantly in the resurrection. Look at this thought from Tim Keller. We have positions, right? We have certain views on things in our lives. This is, this is a very helpful thought. I think one of the most helpful thoughts for thinkers. He says, skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. You cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith in belief B. For example, if you doubt Christianity because, quote, there can't be just one true religion, right? That's a position that Christianity promotes. 
you must recognize that this statement in itself is an act of faith. No one can prove it empirically, and it is not a universal truth that everyone accepts. If you went to the Middle East and said, there can't be just one true religion, nearly everyone would say, why not? The reason you doubt Christianity's belief A is because you hold unprovable belief B. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. And so this morning, we're confronted with the resurrection. Do you believe that God became a man, walked upon the earth, yielded his perfect life to be taken from him in death, was in the ground, and three days later was risen from the dead? Do you believe that? Oh, boy, Keith, you know, I don't know, you know? I, don't, I, I have my doubts. I, I don't know if I believe that. All right, well, here's my challenge to you. Don't stop there. Ask the next question. Then what do you believe? What do you believe in its place? And why do you believe that? So here's, here's something. I've seen this happen over and over and over and over and over again. It's one of the reasons I love this thing we call the Alpha Course that we do here. It's a 10-week introduction to the Christian faith. And what's interesting about it is it presents a view, and then it takes about 45 minutes around tables for people to discuss those views. And the discussion's not led by one guy who says, okay, everybody shut up and listen to me tell you what to think now. It basically throws a question on the table and says, hey, what do y'all think? And it invites people to download what they think. And this is what I love about this process. What it does is it forces you to live an examined life. It forces you to stop and ask yourself questions. Okay, I'm not sure about that Christianity thing. Okay, that's cool. What are you sure about? What do you believe? Well, um, you know, I, I believe this, and I, you know, I kind of believe that. And then you, you scratch the surface of that for a moment, and here's what I've seen over and over and over again. Once you scratch the paint off, the little thin layer of paint of, I don't believe that, I, you know, I'm kind of believing this, why do you believe that? Nearly no one can explain what they believe and why they believe it. It's not an adequate response just to say, well, you know, the resurrection, I, I don't really know that I believe that. But you don't believe that because you believe something else. Have you investigated that? Do you have better evidence for what you believe than the evidence for Christianity? Do you really have better evidence than that? Have you really ever done the homework? If I were to go into your house right now and say, hey, pull out all the books. Show me all the websites. Show me the research that you've compiled that's formed your position. Or would you just say, well, I don't know. I've never really done that. I'm just kind of living in hand-me-down ideas. That's just what I've always believed. It's what my parents believed, my grandparents. I don't, really? See, Jesus bumps into a belief system, and he says, your belief system is wrong. The Son of God can stand and say, you are wrong. And I know that kind of blows the lid off of some of our images of Jesus, like he's, you know, I think Jeff said last week, he's like he's this kind of slow-moving, hippie Jesus. You know? He doesn't get freaked out over anything. 
and he's just kind of okay with everything, and he sounds half-loaded. You know, it's kind of, that's cool, dude, man. And you believe that, all right, Sadducees, wow. Hey, Pete, did you check out the Sadducees, man? They're not into the resurrection. Peace out, man. And he just moves on to the next town. <laughs> okay, that's not Jesus in the Bible. I find a lot of people have never, ever read the Bible, but they're absolutely sure that that's how Jesus would have responded. It's like, well, if you've never read the Bible, maybe you've never really bumped into him. Because he, he listens to their position and immediately says, you are wrong. Well, then let me make sure you understand what I said. You're quite wrong. <laughs> and who he said this to is significant. These weren't just Joe nobodies, right? It's hard to be so qualified and still be so wrong. These guys were religious people. William Lane says that the delegation that posed their problem to Jesus consisted of Sadducee and scribes who were specialists in biblical interpretation. These guys were specialists in explaining the Bible. Kent Hughes says, according to them, there was no resurrection. They said it was not taught in the Torah. And therefore, it was a false doctrine. So these guys actually reached into the Bible and said, you can't believe in the resurrection because it's not in there. Now, listen, what if you never picked the Bible up? And some guy comes along, and he's dressed in robes, and he's got some letters behind his name, and he says, look, I've read the Bible. You don't need to read it. Let me just tell you what's not in the Bible. The resurrection's not in the Bible. What if you've never read the Bible? Jesus immediately says, let me tell you something. You're wrong. Because you don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. He cuts right to the point. And then he quotes from the Bible. Have you not read when God encounters Moses at the bush? That's in the Bible, dude. And it's at odds with your idea that the resurrection never really occurred. Wrong belief has consequences. Right? We discover that in the Sadducees. Wrong belief has consequences. Whatever you believe, it's the embryo of what your life is going to become. These Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Right? Ken Hughes later says, they did not believe there was, listen, any life after death, and therefore there was no judgment, no rewards, and no penalties. Might as well pull the boundaries off your life. If all you got is this short time span, right, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they also didn't believe in the, in the sort of the immediacy of God, the providential aspects of God, that God got involved supernaturally on a local level in your life. They didn't believe those things. What effect do you think that might have on the way you lived your life? If you thought at the end of your life, you don't have to give an account to anybody. You don't have to answer. There's no penalty. There's no hell. You don't exist. Do you think that might affect the way you live, your value system, what you pursued, what was important to you? Ken Hughes says the Sadducees came from families of the highest standing. They were wealthy and worldly. They were also ill-mannered and bumptious. In other words, they were arrogant. Josephus wrote, even among themselves, rather boorish in their behavior and in their intercourse with their peers, are, are as rude as aliens. So apparently this is a real fun bunch to be around. Just kind of got, kind of got some manner issues. But, you know, at the, at the end of life, none of it matters. Do you understand? Sure. You know, I'm not here to impress anybody. It doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what you think of me. Donald English says, they were responsible for the trading in the temple. 
Remember when Jesus walked into the temple and he started dumping tables over? Sadducees, these leaders in Israel had set up a temple system where when you came to worship God, they took advantage of you. You showed up with your money because you needed to come purchase a lamb to bring as an offering to God. And, they'd, and you'd bring your money and they'd say, oh, your, your money's not good here. You're going to need to exchange that for temple money. Well, what's the exchange rate? Well, it's really, really shot up lately. So I'm sorry, that's only worth half of what it was worth last year. You're going to have to come up with twice as much. So do you understand what you believe about the resurrection affects the way you live your life. If all you got is here and now and you don't have a life after this, wealthy and worldly is probably the best philosophy you could go after, isn't it? No matter what you got to do to be wealthy, rip off the God worshipers. Rip them off. Makes sense because when you die, you just go into the ground. See, what you believe about the resurrection it matters. Now listen, move away for a moment from historic Sadduceeism to functional Sadduceeism. People who might sort of de-emphasize the resurrection. Maybe it exists somewhere, but it's just not that important. It's not a life-shaping issue for me. People like Adolf Hitler. You know Adolf Hitler actually said this in a speech? Publicly. It says, the national government regards Christianity as the foundation of our national morality. Adolf Hitler said that. Do you really believe that? Do you think Adolf Hitler really believed in the resurrection? Do you think he was living his life, making his decisions, really believing that one day I'm going to come up out of the ground and I'm going to stand before God? Do you think he was thinking that? I tend to think that, that he was a functional Sadducee, even if he wouldn't stand up and say, I'm a Sadducee and I absolutely refute the resurrection. He was a functional Sadducee because he didn't think he was going to stand before God one day. Boy, was he wrong. What a shock to realize the resurrection is real. And you're going to stand before God. You're going to come up out of that grave. Your life is going to continue into another life. Listen, maybe there's no Hitlers in the room here. I doubt that there is. But there might be other functional Sadducees that, that can attend church. You know, the guy who can show up in a Christian church, maybe sing a couple of songs even, hang out amongst Christians while he's committing adultery on his wife. And do that over and over and over again. Come on, do you, do you think that guy really believes in the resurrection? Oh, he might say he believes in the resurrection, but come, do you think he really believes in the resurrection? Has the resurrection story really dawned on this guy? You're going to come out of the ground and you're going to stand before God. Well, the guy who's living in this world, like the the wealthy man who came to Jesus with a quarrel with one of his relatives saying, tell my brother to divide my inher the inheritance with me. And Jesus stops him, immediately aware that this man has defined his whole life around his 60 or 70 years right here on this earth. 
And this wealthy man who had all this increase in his life, and Jesus recognized it, and he told the parable about the wealthy person whose crops produced this bountiful harvest. And what will I do with all this increase in my life? I'll build bigger barns. I'm going to invest in my future right here in this world. And Jesus told him, not even when your life consists of all these possessions is that what your life is made up of. You fool, this night your life is required of you. And in the next life, you don't get to take any of the grain with you. So you can be a functional Sadducee, living for wealth, living for material possessions, living for stuff of this earth because you've basically said, I'm not thinking about the resurrection. I'm not thinking about life beyond this life. I'm just thinking about right here, right now, and what I can get right now, what I got to do to get what I need right here, right now. Well, Jesus goes after that last thought here, back in Mark chapter 12. Confronts the idea that they are, are wrong, and then he explains something about life here. Explains that your life is not merely earthbound. Let me explain to you what happens when you die. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you get what Jesus did here when you reach back and grab that scripture? Time frame, Abraham lives 2,000 years before Christ. So it's 2,000 years since Abraham, who had a son, Isaac, and then Jacob was his son. It's been 2,000 years since Abraham. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham. I'm still his God. I'm his God right now. Abraham still exists. He is still around. Abraham has an eternal relationship with me. He's been dead 2,000 years. Listen, Abraham now has been dead 4,000 years. And God is still his God. Now think about your life this way. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Abraham lived a long life on earth, probably about 175 years. He knew God as God for 175 years on this earth. He has known God as God for nearly 4,000 years somewhere besides here. Are you thinking about your life that way? Because you're not even going to get 175 years, are you? And yet we're trying to define God and who God is to us out of this little piece of terrain of our life here upon this earth. And the resurrection opens up to something so big and enormous and life-changing and life-defining because your life here is a vapor. Abraham knew the God over all of his creation for 175 years here. But he's been knowing that God face-to-face apart from this earth all these years. Ken Hughes says, these three patriarchs enjoyed a special covenant relationship with God, which was so dynamic, so profound, that it demanded a continued living relationship with God after death. God does not make an everlasting covenant with insects, which last an hour. The eternal God does not covenant with creatures that live only three score and ten years and then go out like a candle. Listen, listen, can you draw near here for a moment? Turn to Hebrews 11. I just want to draw near to Abraham for a moment before we get ready to close. 
There's, there's something here relational about God to us. That when God entered a relationship with a man named Abraham, and if you, if you know the Bible, you'd know Abraham didn't know God at one point, And God shows up in his life and makes a covenant promise to Abraham to be in relationship with him. So in this promise to Abraham, some time's going to begin to unfold. And there'd be time upon the earth, but there would be time into eternity. And listen, can you get this? That God has an affection for you. A relationship with you that's not just in this moment. Here, let me just read this for a moment. We're going to stare at this verse together. Hebrews chapter 11 is going to tell us a little bit about his story. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, right? He went pursuing the promises that God had made. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And I skip to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And do you get this? God shows up in a man's life. His feet are on the ground and on earth. God shows up in his world and promises, I'm going to be your God, Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be in covenant relationship with you. Follow me. Trust me with your life. And Abraham does, and he follows God. And he says he went out not knowing where he was going on earth. And it said he died without inheriting the promises. What were the promises? Well, they were promises that were not to be found in this world. They're the promises Abraham's been living in for the last 4,000 years. See, we look at Abraham's life and we say, God showed up in his life and said he would bless him. And then we put this time span on that and we call it 175 years. And we look for God to be God to Abraham in that 175 years. I used to think this was kind of like an insult. You skip down to verse 39. After all these people lived in faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, it says, And these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I almost thought, whoa, this is the faith chapter? (laughs) All these guys live by faith and they didn't receive what they were promised? Oh, what's up with that? Is, Is there a place where you can get your money back? I mean, who sold these guys on such a bad deal? They lived their whole life and they didn't receive what was promised? You get the idea that God had something else in mind? God had a heavenly city in mind? Abraham, these promises I'm making to you, they're they're over there. They're over that hill, that that hill right there that says death. 
They're on the other side of that. They're, they're what happens when I resurrect you and bring you out of this realm and put you in my presence forever. And you begin to feel and experience and know the deep riches of having intimacy with me. And I fulfill all these promises to you. That's the resurrection. Listen, was God not faithful to these folks? Can you put yourself in their shoes for a second? Because I'm pretty sure some of us could say we're going through circumstances that feel like God is not faithful to me. God promised. I thought God said he'd bless me. I thought he said he was my father and he was for me. Do you understand what I'm going through right now? Do you know what I've been through in the last five years or however long it's been? And we're looking for God to show up and honor his promises. Okay, what if... What if the vast majority of God's promises exist on the other side of that hill for you? What if that's what the resurrection was about? It was to tell you that this place is temporary. Your body is temporary. All the promises here are temporary. They're all going to go away. But there are coming promises that will last forever. Are you looking for that? Now listen, go back to where we started. You understand, you can either delight in the resurrection, you can de-emphasize it. There's a lot of Christians who just live in the de-emphasis of the resurrection. We're all about right now. We're all about right here. We're all about God showing up in our world and doing something fancy for our earthly existence. It's like we didn't read the intention of God correctly. God's intention was to show up in this world. But the ultimate inheritance of his promises is on the other side of that hill for every one of us. Do you believe that? Would you draw more comfort this morning if I could tell you that some of you here today, can't tell you who they are, but on your way out today, you're going to learn that you've won the lottery. And millions and millions of dollars will be yours. You're going to pay all your bills. You're going to get to do everything you ever wanted to do. All your dreams are going to come true. Right, if, I just, I mean, if I just walked up and gave you a Powerball ticket, just that, right? Could have waken a little bit of faith in you. The pastor's given me a Powerball ticket. <laughs> what if I did this? What if I said, I'm going to give you this ticket. It's a winning ticket. And I stopped and I prophesied over you. And I told you something from your past that nobody knew but you. And I handed you to that ticket. You got a Powerball ticket that's loaded, baby. <laughs> What's that doing for the way you feel, right? <sighs> We're about to lose the house. <laughs> I mean, in that moment, faith is all over you, right? And what if you came out for prayer today and you were in tears and you're saying, my life is really, really hard. And I said, I don't have a Powerball ticket, but I, I got this word for you. God is going to resurrect you. He's going to put you in a body that will never wear out and you're never going to have any sickness, any disease, and you're going to see God face to face and he's going to blow your mind for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Hang in there. Would you feel as good about that? Or would the Powerball ticket really do it for you? Listen, what a de-emphasis we have done to the resurrection. We have so de-emphasized this. Do you understand why Easter needs the Easter bunny? Because, I mean, let's face it, without the Easter bunny, it's kind of boring, isn't it? 
I mean, it's just the resurrection, and that's so far off in the future. I mean, give me some candy for goodness sake. <laughs> Let me go hunt for eggs. Do something exciting. That's, I mean, that's so far away. It's the resurrection. Yeah, well, Keith, I believe in the resurrection. Why are you picking on the Easter bunny? <laughs> because we're sort of functional Sadducees. We've so de-emphasized the resurrection. It doesn't jazz us. It doesn't get us up. We're not delighted. We didn't get up today saying, no matter what problem I have, wow, I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be completely forgiven in that resurrection and stand before God, and he is going to blow my mind, and some city is waiting for me there. That's the truth. And let me just read a couple of passages to you and we're going to close. Listen to this. I think I'll put these in the, in the overhead here. First John chapter 3. Just, just, just get in close and quiet with God for a moment. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's a verse looking for what it does to you now when you believe in the day of resurrection. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, right? All the temporary stuff, all this earth... All your cool clothes and your gadgets and your temporary existence here, it's going to be dissolved. It's going to just be done away with. Since that's the case, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting and hastening the coming of the day of the God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, are you really waiting for that? Is that your hope? Lord, you're going to take us out of this place into a place that you have prepared for us and you've been preparing it for all these years. Are you looking for a new heaven and a new earth? Or do you just want God to show up in this one and fix it up for you? Fix up the temporary. Fix up my body, God. Fix up my house. Fix up the material things. Fix up my relationships, God. Fix everything here. God, if you were God, you'd show up and fix everything here. God says, hope in the day that's coming. I'm going to dissolve everything that's here. And I'm going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and I'm going to take you there. That's what the resurrection has done for you. It's released you from this day of death into a new life. Are you hoping for that? It might be good news, might be bad news for you to at least feel like bad news. You know, God is constantly trying to make us look for that day get our eyes off of this day. Do you know God is constantly doing that? It, it feels like someone's prying your fingers off these temporary things. And 
I don't know how your fingers are, but the moment God gets a few of them off from me, I just take the other hand and grab them. <laughs> and he goes to work prying those things off. That's true for me. It's true for you. Listen, it's true for the Apostle Paul. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I just wanted it to be over. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Understand, sometimes God is trying to pry your hands off of this life and to say, listen, this was a temporary deal. The ultimate fulfillment of my promises are over there. Don't try to make God just the God of your temporary life here. He's the God of eternity. And if that's the case, boy, resurrection really means something, doesn't it? Let's read this last quote from John Piper together, and we're going to stand up and pray. Look carefully. This is so helpful. When we rely on the God who raises the dead and revel in the hope of the glory of God, we don't yield to the sinful pleasures of the moment. We're not suckered in by advertising that says the one with the most toys wins. We don't devote our best energies to laying up treasures on earth. We don't dream our most exciting dreams about accomplishments and relationships that perish. We don't fret over what this life fails to give us, marriage or wealth or health or fame. Instead, we savor the wonder that the owner and ruler of the universe loves us and has destined us for the enjoyment of his glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his eternal kingdom. Let's stand up together. Lord, when we showed up here this morning, probably already we had either been delighting in the resurrection, what it means to our lives in eternity and today, or de-emphasizing the resurrection, maybe hoping to catch a good candy sale, <laughs> or maybe just denying the resurrection completely. But Lord, your word screams out at us. The resurrection speaks to us. It speaks. It's an event awaiting us, but it's speaking to us. What's it saying to you today? What's it saying to you about cancer, chronic fatigue? some unidentifiable illness in your body. What's the resurrection saying to you today? What's the resurrection saying to you this morning about loneliness, isolation, emptiness? 
What's it saying to you about depression or divorce? It's saying to you there's coming a day. Hold on. There's coming a day when the promises of God will be completely realized. And you've tasted some of them, but there's coming a day when God will bring you face to face with him and you will forget these days. There's coming a day when you will receive a resurrected body. You will not be in this one. You will receive a new body. This body will be touched and it will put on immortality. And you'll never know a pain in that body. That body won't shed tears. That body will be fitted to take in the glory of God in a way that you couldn't take it in right now. The resurrection is speaking to you today. What's the resurrection saying to you this morning? If your life this morning, as you came in this place, is wayward, it's selfish, it's materialistic, it's now-oriented, it's got a list of people's names that have been hurt by your quest to have everything you could possibly have. What's the resurrection saying to you? If you're committing adultery, you're cheating on your taxes... What's it saying to you? If you don't know what it is to love the kingdom of God, to give your all for it, to risk things for the things that matter eternally. What's it saying to you when you've made money your prized possession above all other things? What's it saying? What's the resurrection saying to you? When the busyness of life has become a God, and the God of Scripture is nowhere to be found, Listen, to some, the resurrection is saying this life will be over in a vaporous moment and you will stand before God. Listen, if you're here this morning and your condition is such that if you were to stand before God, you'd be afraid right now. You'd be afraid for your life to stand before God and to have to give an account for your life. What are you going to do? Let me tell you what you can do. The reason for the resurrection, the reason why it's such great news is because it came three days after what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And what he did in that moment was he took the sins of those who've offended God and put them upon himself. And he stood before God and he said, God, don't punish them, punish me. Don't take their life, God. Take mine. And the innocent one, the innocent perfect lamb died in your place. If you feel like if you were to stand before God right now, you'd you'd be in trouble. Well, here's what fixes that. Before you put your hope in the resurrection, put your hope in what Christ did on the cross for you. He took your sins so one day you could stand before God cleansed of your sin, forgiven, accepted by God so that when you are resurrected, God's arms will be wide open. and You won't meet him as a judge. You will meet him as a father who loves you and has been longing for the day when you've returned to him. See, this story needs to touch your story. Maybe this morning is the moment for it to touch your story. If you've never come to a place where you've said, God, I give you my life. 
I put my trust and my hope in Jesus Christ. I, I do believe that he's the son of God, that he died for my sins and that he was resurrected. I do believe that. I don't want it to be de-emphasized. I want it to be my delight in life. Well, this morning, turn your prayer to God. Do it right now. Close your eyes right now. Turn your prayer to God and, and give your life to him. Put your faith in him. Pull it away from those temporary things. If you're scared about money, you're scared about your health, it says something about what you put your hope in. Pull your hope away from those things and put it in God. Say, Jesus Christ, my hope is in you. A future upon this earth, but a future forever in heaven with you. A resurrection that awaits me because I have trusted in you. Trust him this morning. Turn away from living life your own way and tell him, you're my Lord from this day forward. Jesus Christ, you're my God from this day forward. My life belongs to you. I don't claim it as my own anymore. God, start the work you've always wanted to do in my life and God, let it last for all eternity. Today, Easter 2011, I surrender my life to you. And for those of us who have done that before, but yet you're here this morning and life feels heavy. Have you lost sight of the resurrection? It's not an asterisk. It's, it's not a footnote. This life is the footnote. You will live this life for a brief moment, and then you will step into a resurrected life. The one that Abraham's still dancing and for 4,000 years, and he's looking forward to more. It's still coming more and more. Listen, if your life has suddenly become so heavy and so disappointing, is it because you've put too much hope in right now? God, I pray for those that are here this morning. Well, they've trusted in you, Lord. Ultimately, their hope is in you. But, Lord, right now, life feels heavy and disappointing. Lord, would you invade our lives today, Easter 2011. God, invade our lives with a fresh vision of the resurrection. Lord, let it be said to us that we understand the good of being able to say all these died without receiving what was promised. But they were about to receive it, Lord, when they stepped into a resurrected life and unto them came myriad of blessing and promises fulfilled. Lord, lift our eyes today. Lord, these temporary moments don't define our lives. God, your eternal existence defines our lives. God, we lift our eyes to the resurrection. Lord, one day we will come up out of this world and you will dissolve everything that was here and we are longing for a new day, a new heaven and a new earth, a place where we see you face to face. Your love is unhindered, your presence bringing fullness of joy. God, we long for that day. Lord, this is not the place for fullness of joy. That place is the place for fullness of joy. So God, lift our gaze as we sing here and dismiss today. God, capture our hearts once again. Lord, let Easter not be some moments once a year on a calendar. Let it be daily delight in our souls as we long for the God who will resurrect us and set us in his presence, blameless and with great joy. In Jesus' name. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone. 
destined us for the enjoyment of his glory and is working infallibly to bring us to his eternal kingdom. Lord, we revel in this news today 
and tomorrow and for the rest of time. And when time rolls over into eternity, we will still celebrate these same truths. Oh God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you.